This is Leighton Gray. This is Tanner Today. This is Donald Best. This is Granny Mackay. This is Steve Holmstrom. This is Viva Fry. You're listening to the Sean Newman Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, folks. Happy Wednesday. All right. This is going to, you know, uh, harken back to uh, James Coates being on the podcast. So before we get there, uh, you know, and uh, see what the phone line does today, let's uh, let's get to today's episode uh, sponsors. Let's start first here. Blaine and Joy, Stephen Guardian Plumbing and Heating, home of the Guardian Power Station, bringing free electricity to everyone as well as reliable off-grid solutions, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and beyond. All you got to do is go to guardianplumbing.ca. There you can find all the information. You can find a number to give them a call, or you can schedule your next appointment at any time. Cable of Taves, Renegade Acres, they got the, the community spotlight. And here here's an interesting one. Shine Christian Academy is hosting a bracket pickleball tournament at Noble Country Estates Arena. So that's around the Lloydminster area here, folks, uh, just north. Saturday, September 30th, 10 a.m. start, 10 teams max, double elimination, $50 per team. I feel like there's a whole bunch of pickleballers that just heard that. are like, well, I wonder if I can, you know. I've been waiting to hear a pickleball tournament. Maybe these happen all the time. I'm like, if if my knee was a little better right now, I'd be like, I'm in on that sucker. Anyways, double elimination, $50 per team. Call Chelsea Noble. Uh, oh, no, Chelsea. Is it Chelsea? Is it Chelsea Noble? Anyways. To enter, 306-839-7948. Somebody's going to text me the proper... Anyways, can't say a name today. Uh, Silver Gold Bull is North America's premier precious metals dealer with state-of-the-art distribution centers in Calgary and Las Vegas. They ensure fast, fully insured, discreet shipping right to your doorstep. Silver Gold Bull offers a diverse set of services including buyback wholesale, registered savings, IRA accounts, RRSP, and TFSA, as well as storage and refining solutions. You can trust Silver Gold Bull to elevate your precious metals investment journey with unrivaled expertise and unparalleled convenience. Your prosperity and security are top priority, making Silver Gold Bull the go-to choice for all your precious metal needs. I'm going to be honest. I'm, I'm starting not to have the issue of butchering that that ad read. I know at the start I was like, silvergoldbull.ca, that's where you got to go. But when I first started doing the ad read, I, man, I couldn't make it two sentences without, uh, I don't know if it's the way I got it written down or what. Anyways, silvergoldbull.ca, that's where you need to go. Uh, Kent Erickson and his wife Tasha, that's Erickson Agro Incorporated out of Irma, Alberta. They're supporting the podcast, raising four kids, although I got one of them uh, living at the house now, you know. And uh, so uh, Blair Erickson, shout out to you. And to his mom, because I said I'd give a shout-out on here and a little update. Uh, well, folks, he's playing for uh, the Athletics here in town and uh, living at the house. So, so far, so good. Nothing uh, earth-shattering to report. Uh, finally, the Deer and Steer Butchery is a fast-growing custom-cutting and wrapping butchery uh, located near Lloydminster. They focus on high-quality, locally-sourced meats with unparalleled customer service who are proud to be from this community. They are currently seeking a dedicated and experienced butcher to join us, not as an employee, but as a partner. If that's you, reach out 780-870-8700. I got to get in there and uh, cut up some meat a couple weeks ago, let me tell you. Um, I always enjoy I always enjoy that experience, probably because I don't actually get to do that all the time, you know. For hunters and everything else, they probably do it more, and uh, they don't enjoy the process. Well, not, I shouldn't say that, don't enjoy the process. It's probably something they get to do enough where they're like, I don't need to seek that experience out because they're doing it. Me, on the other hand, I never do it. So uh, if you are, are, are like, man, I'd love to try that out. 
um, yeah, uh, the deer and steer butchery offers that. So you can get your animal butchered and then you can go in and help. Just saying. Now, let's get on to the tail of the tape brought to you by Hancock Petroleum. For the past 80 years, they've been an industry leader in bulk fuels, lubricants, methanol, and chemicals delivering to your farm, commercial, or oil field locations. For more information, visit them at HancockPetroleum.ca. He's a doctoral candidate in theology at the Catholic University of America, and he works as an editor of the Word on Fire academic publishing imprint. I'm talking about Jason Payone. So buckle up. Here we go. Welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. Today I'm joined by Jason Payone. So first off, sir, thanks for hopping on. Great to be here. Um, I was saying to you, you know... uh, we're going to get into everything about your background and everything else, but we were talking before we started. A1, I was hoping your name was going to be something like the last name. I was looking at it for so long, you know, PA1. I'm like, ooh, this could be an interesting name. And of course, pay. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I was excited yeah. for how I was going to try and pronounce it. Anyways, that's, I get a kick out of names, you know, do this. The other thing was, is I was telling you about uh, James Coates' interview, and you'd listen to it, and. Uh, I was, you know, partway through, I'm like, man, like in my brain, I'm like, the phone line is just going to tear me apart. But in the nicest possible way, because listeners aren't upset. If anything, they're like, you need to get a Catholic on stat Mm -hmm. and refute some of this and talk about it. And so, I mean, somehow or another, we come to Jason and and, uh, and we're going to talk some of that. But once again, thanks for doing this. Thanks for coming on. Let's get into who Jason is, because I got no clue. You know, uh, you got to tell me a little bit about your story and and let the audience know who you are. So I'm Jason Payon, as I already said. Um, I am a father of three I and a husband, and I live in Texas, Dallas, Texas. How old I'm are also, your kids? My kids are 16 years old. I have a 16-year-old girl, which is, a, is, is quite a... It's, <laughs> quite a it's a good time. It's a good time. It's a lot of. How old? I, I, you know, they tell me never ask this question, but I'm like, how old are you? I am 37. I think you start to lose track in the later 30s. So <laughs> you had I'm, you had a kid very young. Very young. Yes. Yes. I did. I guess that's um, not my, that young. 21. 20. 20. I think I was 21. Yeah. My wife and I we uh, we got we met when we were like 15 years old. We've sort of the the high school sweetheart story. Um, we've been married for se- 17 years, I think, almost, or, or 16 years, something. We've been, no, sorry, 17 don't, years. Must don't be. let her listen. <laughs> <laughs> we've been married for 17 years because we were married one year before my daughter was born. So that's that's a good way to keep track of it. <clears throat> gotcha. Well, I, I sit here, I'm 37, I got three, but uh, we, oh, wow, are, wow. we are a little ways behind you. We're, we're seven, six, and uh, the little guy just turned four. And actually, I was, I, was al- I was almost texting you to be like, <laughs> We got to cancel it because we had a long night last night. The little guy oh, was man. in the hospital with croup, you know, the heart breathing, oh, no. all that jazz. Like, you, you know, you're like, ah, this sounds, the worst thing of a parent is having yeah. a small child where you know exactly what it is. You're like, it's croup. This sucks. Uh-huh. It sounds yeah. awful. There's not much you can do. I mean, yes, there is in little ways, but it got to the no. point where, you know, he's throwing up and everything else and you go to the hospital and what else can you do? So wow. the, the night has been an interesting one. Sorry to hear that, Sean. Yeah, I, I, I feel your pain. Um, our kids, we've just been through a big a respiratory illness of some kind, who knows. Um, but but yeah, you just sort of want to take the disease from them and, you know, suffer it yourself and spare them the, the misery because these little kids, they just really can't understand it. And 
scary and yet, for them. And yet, uh, to to help improve their immune system and, and everything else, uh, it's not like it's the end of the world for that's them true. to get sick. I was actually having the conversation with my kids, my two oldest this morning at the, oh, the dinner good. table. You know, they're like, oh, you know, and they're just down. And how did he get sick? And that's terrible. Well, people get sick. Like, I mean, th- whoa, this this isn't anything new, folks, uh, especially croup. I mean, croup sucks. It just, it just mm-hmm. does, but... Anyways, I interrupted. Yeah. I, I heard three kids. Okay. I'm looking at you. I'm going, you're not that old. <laughs> uh, so 16, how old are your other two? 16, seven, and two. So I have oh. a real spread. I plan to be a grandparent <laughs> and a parent of a young child at the same time, <laughs> apparently. Fair yeah. enough. That, that is a spread. <clears throat> yeah. I, right after my daughter was born, I entered uh, college and I've been, I've been a student since uh, since my my daughter was about two years old, so I've been in college for a long, long time. <laughs> I'm just you, now finishing my doctoral program. That's why. And and, and what did you go into school for? Um, initially, <clears throat> I wanted to be a, a priest. Actually, when I was I was I was still a Protestant, um, and I wanted to be a, a, an Anglican priest. I, I sort of got really into C.S. Lewis, and I just loved everything about C.S. Lewis. And I, I loved the Church of England, Anglican tradition. And so I joined that church and I wanted to be a priest. But um, halfway through, my wife said, you know, I don't want to be the, the wife of a priest. <laughs> Why don't you get into teaching instead? And little did she know, um, the teaching path is a good deal longer than the, the priest path. So <laughs> I'm still on it. But I also work full time as an editor. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of the, 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 me- the editor of uh, Word on Fire Academic. It's, a, it's the academic publishing imprint of Bishop Barron's, Bishop Robert Barron's Word on Fire, the ministry that he's created to kind of evangelize and to sort of give a, 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 a presentation of what Catholicism is all about. So in some way, I guess I'm the right person to be on the show for you. Well, I, uh, yeah, I, I did a little, a little light digging on you because <laughs> I, I don't love to know everything because then that spoils the fun of a, a exploring right. a conversation. But I'm like, who, who is this guy? And I saw the, <laughs> I saw your schooling. I'm like, well, that's that's a lot of years. That's a, that's yeah. a, that's a lot of time and study. What was it? Um, you know, when you go back, you know, you know, you said you wanted to be a priest right off the hop. Yeah, I I can't. I must be come from a different world because I don't remember ever thinking that sounded like the career for me or you know the life path for me. What was it about the a, being a priest, Jason? That you're like that makes actually I I really want to do that. Um. Yeah, that's a really good question, and and I sort of think when people ask questions like this, when someone has like a ready-made answer. It's probably not completely true. <laughs> I think I think there's a great you know a great deal that's just mysterious about uh, you know Saint Augustine said this sort of thing that like we're mysteries to ourselves. But I, I can say that I I, I remember reading uh, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, and that was the moment where I sort of fell in love with the Christian tradition, fell in love with Christian theology, fell in love with the idea of God, and uh, I wanted to serve God somehow. And that was sort of the most obvious thing. I had, I had been raised um, a sort of <clears throat> a kind of evangelical, um, a, a very uh, a, a, an evangel a branch of evangelicalism that was probably closest to Pentecostalism. It was non-denominational, but but of course non-denominational is a, is a kind of do- denomination, um, and and it it was it was mostly like Pentecostalism, I would guess. Um, but when I encountered C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. 
um, I, for the first time, I got a, a taste for the ancient richness of the Christian tradition. Um, unfortunately, there's there's been kind of historical tendency to kind of cut away, you know, pare away um, all, aspects of the of the tradition that have been too uh, controversial or or complicated for the ordinary person to understand. And I think the result is just a, a really bare bones kind of Christianity that is is still you know i think beautiful and elegant in its own way but but um i was when i encountered you know sort of a more ancient a more uh culturally rich form of christianity it it's it just caught my attention and i've and i've been sort of in its captivity ever since well i just we literally just talked about c.s lewis uh, uh a week ago maybe a little less um Screw tape letters. Uh, mm, I got to. I got to. Uh, got to read that. Uh, that one. I haven't read the one you're talking about. When you talk about an ancient, more ancient, more full Christian, what, what do you mean? What have they cut away? Well, I think <clears throat> if you have one concrete example, the Nicene Creed. I didn't know anything about this Nicene Creed. Um, and all no, you know, not, I, not and, and apologies, not the Nicene Council, the Nicene Creed. I'm yeah, so, I hope I'm creed. saying that right. You're, you're, well, we the adjective is Nicene, okay. um, but the city is called Nicaea. Yeah, N I C E A, correct? Yeah, there's a, there's actually an oh, extra there's probably who am there. I kidding? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. I I, I I'm, I'm pretty song. sure I understand what you're talking about, but sorry, yeah. the creed. Uh, yeah, fill me in. Yeah, so the in in, in the fourth century, um, the church came together. Uh, the bishops from all over the world came together in what they call an ecumenical council and to try to settle uh, some questions about the nature of Christ. <clears throat> this was the original re meeting uh, reason for, the, for calling the meeting. And the question was whether Christ was divine and really not whether he was divine, but how divine was Christ? Um, there are people who sort of thought that he was he was like a God, but a lesser God, like a lesser deity than the father. Um, this is, you know, the famous presbyter Arius thought this. Um, <clears throat> but at Nicaea, they they settled that Jesus was, although he wasn't, um, he he was he was begotten of the Father, wasn't less than the Father, wasn't inferior to the Father in any way, and so he was equally divine. Um, and that was the sort of um, that was the theology that came out of that council. And then ultimately, uh, a, a council later, or a couple councils later, there was Council of Chalcedon. And so sometimes people talk about the Niceno, or sorry, the Council of Constantinople is what I should say. So um, the the night what we call the Nicene Creed today is actually the product of these two councils. And in that second council in Chalcedon, they said that the same, basically the same thing about the Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all co-equal divine persons uh, that sh share the same substance. They're one divine being together, but they they subsist in three persons. Um, so that that doctrine, which we, we now call the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, um, is is not explicitly in the New Testament. It's not explicitly in the Bible. You know, you can find it all over the place if you're looking for it. But it, there's no the word Trinity never appears, and the word consubstantial never appears. The word, um, you know, hypostasis, uh, which we translate as person. Um, those don't appear in the, in, in the Bible. So those, those were things that the church had to, those are truths that the church had to kind of elaborate and work out in a kind of dialectical process. And they were finally codified in this, this creed, 
that for for you know until until very recently i would say um christians all over of all kinds all stripes um held that that creed to be sort of the defining set of of doctrines that christians um minimally espoused um so so that's one thing like i'm you know, it's a surprising thing that there are Christians who have never heard of this Nicene Creed because it's just this essential. If you were to find it, ancient Christians after the fourth century, they they would all they would all be able to recite the Nicene Creed. They would all um, identify the Nicene Creed as the as the quintessential statement of what Christians believe. I remember I remember reading about the Council, <clears throat> and. Right away, I, I don't know if I ever, you know, it's funny I, how a guy's brain works, right? You were so interested in it. As soon as I saw humans mm. had their hands on anything to do with, with uh, the Bible and God, I went, I'm out. I, yeah. I'm just, I, I, as soon as I saw that, I was like, ah, they're going to they, they're gonna mess this up. Because like, yeah. look at look at the way, and I mean, that was back then. I, I was a, a young whippersnapper for that matter, mm -hmm. like when I first heard about it, because I was just like, this is crazy. Why would they ever do anything to the Bible? And, but in your mind, Jason, that's a good thing. Well, I, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think if we rejected that, we'd have to reject the incarnation. You know, the incarnation is a point where human hands are are the instrument of God. You know, God takes on human flesh. He doesn't He doesn't enter into history in some spiritual way that communicates directly into people's minds and enters into people's minds without the the mediation of human persons and human institutions you know and i think one one thing that, that sort of distinguishes the, a catholic sensibility from um from the more recent for protestant sensibility some of them not all of them <clears throat> is that catholics really endorse this idea of the incarnation as a principle that is reflected in in the way God works in the world on, on all sides. You know, and all, and all God works in, through faulty human institutions. God works through faulty human flesh. God works through the people of Israel. God works through the the, the New Testament um, Jerusalem community and through the church that grew out of it. Um, we don't we don't think either that these are per, you know perfect groups of people perfect councils perfect institutions and that their perfection is what produces um you know what what infallibly uh carries the truth forward into the world carries the gospel and proclaims it but but we think that somehow despite all of the human imperfection the holy spirit works through these human institutions just like like the, the son worked through the human flesh of jesus christ yeah, you may you you actually raise very good points there. You know, uh, if we're if we're gonna let human hands write the Bible, it's uh, not uh, such a stretch to imagine um, the church coming together to discuss said Bible and and try and clear up some things. Um, actually, that was probably one of the, the biggest realizations I had like four months ago. I remember looking back up the council because I'm like. What the heck was that? I thought they like tore pieces out of the Bible and they got like I don't know why my brain thought that. Because when you go back and read it, you're like, oh, they were just arguing about exactly what you're talking about. Like, mm -hmm. uh, it yep. seems like such a reasonable <laughs> thing to argue about, you know. Even yeah. even then, um, you know, a couple of things, and I, I, this is what stood out to me. I went back and I listened to to James on. And I would love at some point to have like a roundtable. I think it'd be amazing to have a few different uh, looks at this, you know, to 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 just discuss. But one of the, one of the things he brought up was the Council of Trent, and I was mm -hmm. like, 
I would love your thoughts on that. Yeah. And and the fact that you don't recognize, and I don't know if this is true, the gospel of Paul. And I'm like, okay, well, and maybe I, I, I butchered what he said, and I don't want to put yeah. words in his mouth, but that's two <clears> of the <throat> things that stood out to me about what James was talking about when it comes to Catholicism compared to the biblical Christian text. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so first of all, let, let me just say that I, I mean no personal uh you know, hostility toward Pastor James. I think he he seems like a real upstanding, uh, you know, servant of the church. And I I I think that a lot of what you hear in in the interview with him is a sort of standard set of tropes that um, Protestants. There's a certain kind of Protestant that just doesn't know who he is if he's not sort of slandering Catholics. Um, and I. I don't want to contribute to um, hostility between Protestants and Catholics. And I, I want to make it very clear: I didn't bring you on to. I, sure, I, I sure. bring in uh, to me. I'm, you know, as I told James, I, I just finished Thessalonians, right? I'm, I'm just working my way through it. So to me, I'm like, I'm just adding people to discussion. <laughs> this is right. this is this is just a little journey, and all of a sudden, I got thrown. Whether it's a curveball or a hayman, it doesn't matter. I, I stepped on a landmine. I was like. <laughs> oh my God! I did not see that coming, you know. And, and no. I, I hadn't thought about the word mass. And when I go back and listen to it, I chuckle now because you know, like, I mean, what a word to set off a collision course with this conversation. So I, I, I'm, mm -hmm. you're just adding to the body. You're, yeah. you're, you're, you're addressing a few of the things he said. There is a ton of Catholics that mm -hmm. were listening to this, and we're oh, like, wow. please get somebody on that can talk to the Catholic faith. I'm like, all right. I thought I just thought personally, <laughs> Christianity. And underneath it was like Catholics and Protestants and mm -hmm. Baptists and, and on and on it went. And I'm like, I, I just assumed you were all like, I don't know. I, I don't know. You're all, you yeah. all look at the same bloody book. So I'm like, what the heck is yeah. going on? Yeah. Um, you know, the situation with Christians today is, is, is in a way the greatest testament against the gospel, I think. Uh, you know, the fact that Christians have such a horrible history of hostility to one another um, it is re really, I think, the reason why this, you know, the secular uh, anti-Christian world exists. You know, there are a lot of philosophers and theologians who have argued that secularism is a kind of, of Christianity. You know, it's the secular philosophy it doesn't exist in the East, in, in non-Christian places, and neither really do the forms of atheism and agnosticism um, that have prevailed in the West. Um, they're, they're sort of all Western you know, socio-cultural phenomena that have their their roots in, in Christianity, you know, and, and, and atheists are, are inclined to say things like, I, I'm not, you know, I just believe in one less God than you do. Um, you know, so it, I'm not, I'm not so different, you know, I, and I think that there's, there's a certain truth to that sort of sentiment, you know, and I think that, I think that the reason why I, Christians fighting with each other is the reason why all of these, all of these things exist. And, and, you know, so, so I, I think that, um, there, th we're still hashing out certain polemics and certain diatribes against each other that um, that made more sense, I think, in in uh, the 16th and the 17th and 18th centuries than they do today. I think the average person can't really comprehend what the significance is of the kind of differences of doctrine that Father James pointed out. Um, you know about you know how exactly grace works and you know, the specific details of the canon of the, of the Bible. 
and so I, I think you know those those things are not unimportant. They are important differences, and I don't want to minimize them. But at the same time, I don't think they need to separate us any longer. You know, I think a lot of a lot of the the, the hostility that are, that Christians had in the in the early modern era had to do with historical grievances doing, you know, due to bloodshed, you know, these religious pogroms that both sides uh, committed against each other. Um, you know, so there was a, there was a long history of, you know, internecine bloodshed that, that explains some of the hostility, but, but really the, you know, the, the truth is that the, the, our doctrines are much closer and our, our values are much closer than, than I think, uh, you know, some, you know, to, to be fair to James, he's just being true to his tradition. This is the way that Protestants have historically understood their identity by contrast and opposition to Catholics. Um, but when I was a Protestant, I started to reject that way of identifying myself, that I wasn't just somebody who was defined by my opposition to the Catholic Church. And initially it was because I studied the history of, of the church. That was one of the things that didn't allow me to continue to think the way that Father James thinks, um, because a lot of the things that he thinks are just historical fables. Um, the idea, for instance, <clears throat> that the uh, the Bible was was redacted by Catholics, um, you know, that and then the the Protestants restored the true Bible. That's sort of historical fiction. In the first place, wh where did the Bible come from? You know, let's just start with that question. A lot of evangelicals seem to have this idea that it's just sort of descended from the sky, this complete canon just plopped out of the sky, and there it was, and that the Catholics started adding Apocrypha to it and all that. It's really not, you know, it's obviously not the way that it actually happened. You know, the truth of the story is that the the, the Old Testament was defined initially by a, a book called the Septuagint. The Septuagint was a Greek translation of he Hebrew holy books. Um, a collection of Hebrew holy books. And and that is what we call the, the Catholic Old Testament today, which is really just the, the Septuagint. And the Catholics recognized, just as the Jews did, that not all of those books were of equal value, equal historical reliability, equal authority. And so there was a distinction between canonical and deuterocanonical, or canonical and what Martin Luther called apocryphal. Um, and, so, and so the Catholics didn't treat these, these deuterocanonical books as having the same authority as the canonical books of the Old Testament, but they didn't cut them out of this pre-existing canon that was defined by the Septuagint. Neither did Catholics cut books out of the, the New Testament, but where did the New Testament come from? Let's ask that question, you know, because, because again, that's, that's not something that just plopped out of the sky, nor is it something that the Jews defined prior to the Christian tradition. The New Testament was defined by the, the Christian tradition. And there, you know, there, were, there were all kinds of gospels and epistles floating around the Mediterranean. You know, and, and, and somehow this set of texts, some of them don't, you know, aren't super obvious. It's not super obvious why they ended up in the New Testament. Like, the, you know, for instance, the, the epistle to Titus, this is sort of inter, you know, this, this disciplinary memo to the church um, in, in uh, Crete. It's, it's just sort of an odd thing that, you know, you wouldn't normally include that sort of book or writing. You know, it's like a letter. It's a very short letter in, in the New Testament. There are a number of epistles that are like that. Um, now, I think they all have a very good reason, but you can't see it if you just read the, the text, um, you know, superficially at least. <clears throat> the story of how those ended up 
as the Christian canon um, is, is really a story about the church. The, the church read those, those texts. Those were the texts that all around the Mediterranean, the church was using them in the liturgy and reading them um, together and collecting them, them and rejecting the other ones. And it was really far long before the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent, like officially uh, in, in sort of a, a official, you know, uh, ecumenical declaration decided what the Catholic, what, what the canon was, what the Christian canon was. But the canon was already fixed long, long before that. You know, I would say, it, but but it really, the canon was fixed when Jerome was commissioned to to create a, to update um, an edition of 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 the texts that were already being used, and and this is called the Vulgate. You know, it's this common Latin translation um, that that ordinary people could understand uh, of of the whole. The whole Bible, including the Old Testament and the and the books that were circulated at that point. But the truth is that the Gospels weren't written; they they weren't written until you know in many cases in the second century. You know, so there was no New Testament. There were certain you know Pauline epistles floating around earlier than that, but it really wasn't until the second century that there was uh, that the, you know the Gospels were written. These reports were were uh, you know put into into text into into the written word. And why was that? Well, really, the, the apostles were still alive. And most, most people, you know, preferred to hear it from the horse's mouth. Famous church historian Eusebius once said that if, if he had to, he would read a written, you know, written gospel. But he would prefer just to hear it from the apostles or from somebody who knew the apostles. So there was this oral tradition in the early, um, you know, the early centuries of the church. And it wasn't until, the, the, you know, the apostolic generation started to die off that, there was any need to 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 write um you know test testimonies to christ's life and death and resurrection um so the the story is that the church long before the protestants ever entered the picture had established a canon and that canon included the deuterocanonical text of the old testament how did those how, how have we come to think that those don't belong in the bible today well the story of that is martin luther martin luther translated the Bible again. He did his own translation, much like um, Jerome, St. Jerome did. Um, but Luther Luther was the one who decided those don't need to be in the Old Testament anymore. They don't need to be in the same volume. You know, they still exist, obviously. But Luther thought they shouldn't be, you know, listed alongside uh, the authoritative text of the Old Testament. But, you know, Luther wanted to cut other books, too. He wanted to cut the, the epistle to the Hebrews. He wanted to cut the epistle to James, in the New Testament. These are books that Protestants today still regard as sacred scripture, but Luther wanted to cut them. Um, Melanchthon disagreed with him. Um, he thought that the epistle to James uh, was, what he, he called it the, the epistle of straw because it, its emphasis on the importance of works. It says, epistle of uh, James says the faith without works is dead. Luther didn't like that. So he wanted to cut that book. And so really the story here it's not about Catholics adding things to a canon. Catholics defined the canon, and Protestants wanted to cut certain things out of that canon. Now, and I, I don't mean that as, as a kind of criticism of the Protestant tradition. Um, I think that the, the canon is, is a bit more a bit more of an earthly, physical thing than people realize. It has more of a human history. You know, we do, you know, Catholics believe that the Holy Spirit is behind both the authorship and the canonization of the Bible, but they are written by human hands. They were canonized by human 
decisions, you know, by, and, and it, it was, it was, it, it's not just like the supernatural book that floated down out of the clouds. So yeah, I'll stop there. <laughs> well, that was a lot. Um, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm going, okay, <laughs> let's, let's get a couple, let's get a couple things here. I just want to make sure that I don't skip over. And if people are like, what the heck does that mean? Canon sure. is just a, a, a set of like rules or principles, like a guiding thing, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's sort of the, uh, you know, we use the word canonical um, to, to be like the official or the, the thing that you measure other things with. So in Greek, canon is 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 just a, a stick that is like the standard length that you can use to measure things with. So a, a, a canon, a literary canon is like the standard literary uh, composition set of books that you can you can measure other things with. Um, so it's the, the authoritative text and so when we talk about a canon, it's like the it, it, in, in, when you're talking about the scripture, it means that these books are in it and, you know, it's it, it's a decided thing what books are in it. So there are different canons or, um, you know, the, the Protestants <clears throat> continued actually to do to do these, these sort of revisions of the Bible. Um, Thomas Jefferson is sort of famous for doing this. He has a very <laughs> I don't even know what what the re, re, end result was, what he, he kept in the Bible, but it was a very bare bones um Bible with with most of most everything cut out, including the Old Testament entirely. And and there were a lot of there were a lot of Protestants who cut out the entire Old Testament because it was too violent or too, you know. There were some who thought that it would you know it seemed like it reflected a different God or something like that. Um, so so yeah, there there's just been a proliferation of Bibles in the modern era. But um, traditionally there was you know there was you know, some textual variations in different translations and things, but the, the canon was a fairly stable thing from about the fourth century on. You mentioned rise of secular philosophy, uh, or maybe even religions. I, I don't know if you, if you said mm-hmm. religion or philosophy. When you talk secular, are you talk, you, you mentioned like atheism and things like that. Is, is that what you're meaning by that, <clears throat> or were you meaning something different? Yeah, that's a good question. Secular is a kind of uh, weasel word. It can mean a whole lot of different things. I mostly mean um, uh, uh, the idea that that religion is something private and that there's this public world that is neutral. There's like a neutral public space that no no values, no religious values define what goes on in that public space. Like basically, this is the opposite of the the medieval world um, where, you know, sort of everything Christian faith was 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 present everywhere, you know, the way that uh, it was part of the state, it was part of, you know, your ordinary life, your calendar was, 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 you were living through like, you know, this, this is the way that Catholics still do their calendars. Um, there's like a three year liturgical calendar where you're sort of living through the stories of salvation history in a kind of chronological order. Um, and, and so you, you celebrate at different times of the year, different parts of the Christian story. Um, and so it's like you're living through that drama of salvation. Um, <clears throat> but the idea that that there there should be just sort of like a that you should live most of your life in the space where your faith is just sort of absent, doesn't define anything there. And then at certain points, you step out of the secular space. And the secular space includes the, obviously the political order, you know, the political world you know, the hallmark of secularism is the idea that it is disestablishment of a religion from, from the state, you know, the state should not be sort of in bed with any particular religion. Um, that's, that's the sort of centerpiece of the secular paradigm. But 
but secularism is just this broad idea that there's this space that doesn't that that you know in which religion is sort of absent you're in sort of a an in between jason you're i i should ask this off the hop are you originally you're, you're an american or are you which what is your background where are you originally from um, I, I am I'm North America. I'm, uh, I was born in Miami, Florida. I'm an American okay. citizen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've lived the, in Latin re- America. the the reason The reason uh, The reason I ask is, I don't know what you just said about secularism. I just I don't know a little puzzle piece jolted in or what. But what you're talking about is like in the public square, keep your religion out of it. Mm-hmm, That's what you're exactly. saying, right? And I'm thinking like for Canadians right now, man, if if that isn't like what is going on? Okay. So keep it out. We don't, we don't, nobody's not, get it out of here. Schools, get it Mm -hmm. out. Restaurant, get it out. We don't want to see it. Politics, nope, can't do that. Mm -hmm. Right. But pretty much any other uh, policy right now, you know, and I'm I'm thinking, I'm certainly thinking pride, folks. I'm certainly thinking LGBT, Mm -hmm. 2SL plus, I think IA community now, I think it's up to. Um, Regardless, many, many th- different letters in there, huh? <laughs> there is. And the thing is, is like that has been forced into the public square. Right. So that is the public right. square now. But don't yeah. dare. Don't right. dare talk about any of this. I mean, I I catch a little bit of heat for bringing folks like yourself on. I, I think it's <laughs> I think if this is what gets you me living in your head or, or Jason living in your head, you know, you, you got to think about some things because mm-hmm. to me, I, I find fascinating what you're talking about. Yep. But that that part on the secular part. Is really interesting because over the even just my life, probably your life, and I don't. That's why I was asking him if you're. I don't know how uh, the states is. I just know how mm. Canada is. So in our school, you know, like our schools, um, obviously, if you go to Catholic, it'd be different. But in the public mm-hmm. school, like we're trying to remove all religion, get it out. Yeah, that stays in your house. You can everything. But yeah. now all these initiatives on social justice, if you would, are all there. You can see them. Mm-hmm. You just walk in. You're like, this is this is interesting. Right, because you know, gone are the days of the the Lord. You know, I go back in how many generations, where the Lord's prayer was part of the start of the day. Oh, Canada was start of the day. There was all these different things at the start of the day, um, and they're all they've all been removed because, just like you said. So I, mm. I think I was catching what you're meaning by secularism. Absolutely, yeah. You know, I, I think secularism is ultimately a kind of fallacy, and there are different sorts of secularism. O- originally, the American Constitution was designed uh, to encourage uh, religion, you know, it was it was a group of of uh, sort of um, alienated Protestant uh, radical sort of radical end of the Protestant Reformation Puritans. Um, you know, they they all moved to the to the New World, you know, in order to to seek refuge from the persecution they were facing in Europe. Um, and so they wanted a place where all of those kinds of Protestants could could live out their lives faithfully. You know, and so the whole point. Was not was not to abolish religion or to make so religion didn't have any influence in any any you know f- public life of any form. The point was to foster to foster faith, to foster these communities that weren't allowed to exist in Europe. And so the whole business of the separation of church and state in the United States was meant for that. It wasn't meant to say like Christians shouldn't 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 have a place in in government. Christians and their values shouldn't ever be reflected in government. That was never the point. Well, even if um, they wanted that to be the point, it's still reflected. I mean, yeah, like yeah. so much of life in the Western world is, um, whether you want to admit it or not, folks, is based off Christian values. I mean, like, absolutely. It, we just yeah. don't think about it in those terms. 
like I said, even secularism is, is sort of a religious idea. It was it was an idea that emerged in you know the the religious pluralism of Europe, um, the Christian religious pluralism of Europe. This you know this idea that we needed to have a place where you know different kinds of Christianity could coexist, um, and that was only possible if we sort of separated uh, the the church from the power of the state, and uh, and so that's that that was the point originally. Um, and, and that's the reason why you, you don't see things like secularism in other places of the world. It doesn't make sense in, you know, in the, in, in the in, in sort of Middle East, um, Arabic and Islamic world doesn't make, you know, the, and, and really it's like the concept of religion is also sort of an artificial thing. Like, what is a religion? Why, why doesn't, you know, the LGBT movement count as a sort of religion? What kind or, of is? Yeah. You know, it's just sort of an arbitrary distinction of, you know, these kinds of values are religious and those kinds aren't. These doctrines are val are religious and those aren't. Um, you know, in the end of the day, it, it, secularism, is, it, it's a fallacy because ultimately things that are very much like religions are taking uh, precedence and, and, and having sort of a shaping our public life, shaping our common life, um, just, not, just not ones that are identifiably Christian. I had um, Tom Luongo on uh, last week, and we got talking about different movie trilogies, okay? Now, it wasn't a movie trilogy that I, I'm going to bring up because it's been lodged in my head ever since we talked about it. Have you seen the movie Inception? I assume yes, but hey, maybe not. Yeah, I have. Yep. Okay, so you know how he puts the, the idea in the lockbox and that, like, ruins his wife's life, right? Because you can't get—anyways, you get the point, right? Yeah, right. Where along the line with Christianity— the Bible is the first like origin point of where it splits because I'm very curious with that when you said there were pogroms against one another and you were talking mm -hmm. Protestant and Catholics <clears throat> which yep. means essentially riots against each other correct killings yeah wars full-scale wars yeah okay so be before we get into any of that I'm like okay so at some point I assume they were relatively the same well, and somewhere along the line, it breaks mm -hmm. off, or was there always factions trying to control what the Bible and the New Testament and, and the Old Testament and all these stories were going to look like, and this was just a big fight since the beginning? No, there, there weren't Protestants from the beginning. Like, Protestants, uh, they're the first Protestant, uh, presumably, is Martin Luther. I mean, this is the story they tell. Martin Luther, you know, he, he, he started the Protestant Reformation in, what, 1507? So that's the first time... The, there's a Protestant Christian before that 15 centuries before that between Martin Luther and Christ, there are no Protestants that th those, that particular kind of theology and that, you know, there, there are no denominations. In fact, the concept of a denomination is, is would be very confusing. I think to early Christians and to people like St. Paul who said, you know, there, there aren't two bodies of Christ. There aren't two um, baptisms there's one Christ, and so there's one church. Um, and really the word Catholic just means you know, not a sect, not a denomination in a way. It means the one universal church. Um, and St. Augustine made a whole lot of this. It, you know, he always um, would appeal to the Catholicity of the church to, as, as proof that, you know, that some, some disagreement, you know, he, there were these Donatists in North Africa. Donatists are were like more hardline, uh, more devout Catholics 
um, that disagreed with, um, you know, the, the moral laxity that that some of the the, the bishops had allowed and had uh, embodied themselves um, at the time, and so they kind of separated themselves. And and um, Augustine said, you know, even if you are sort of morally superior, you're you're either in the church or you're not. And there's there aren't two churches. There's one church. You know, this sort of refrain of early Christians. Um, Ignatius of Antioch says the same thing. There's one church. Um, uh, Irenaeus of Lyons, one church. Um, you're either you're either in the one church that is, you know, and sometimes broken and defective, but still the church that Christ founded with his apostles. Um, and and so it's it's really just it's you know Protestants aren't existing alongside Catholics um, in, in in any sense until the, the 16th century, and that's when Europe divides but before that christendom was just one you know there was a bunch of different ethnic and you know political groups throughout europe uh, organized into kind of feudal um small feudal states and organizations and it wasn't until the 16th century that you know you start to see these nation states and really you know there's a lot to be said about the you know the, the protestant reformation comes about for a lot of different reasons some of them are theological but there are a lot of political reasons why um, we end up with these different denominations. That you know that there there, there were dis, there were people who disagreed with the church um, before the fifteenth before the sixteenth century. There were you know Albigensians, Cathars, uh, Wycliffites. Um, before that, there were all these Gnostic groups, um, and you know they sort of just they they existed, but they there 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 wasn't this idea that there were different church, you know, there are multiple churches. It was always just either, you know, the, the Gnostics and these other Christians just rejected the Catholic church. And they thought that that was just like, there wasn't a church. There was just, you know, there were, we were the chosen ones. We were the right people or whatever, but the idea of a church, you know, th that there's a plurality of churches that just wouldn't have made sense to the early, you know, to, to the early Christians. And I don't think it even made sense to the early um reformers they they all just claim that there was one church and that one church it it consists not in this institution you know the catholic church has a has like a an institutional aspect the you know with the bishops and the pope and, you know so that institution is pretty you know it's it's it, it's ancient it goes all the way back to you know the probably the second century um you know come it, it is it's continuous with the church you know it's the church that jesus founded i you know i believe that otherwise i wouldn't be a, a roman catholic but um but <clears throat> but the the early protestants didn't believe in denominations they didn't believe that there were a bunch of different there was just one right one true church and then the people that weren't in it um so you know both the protestants and the catholics thought that way only only later on have sort of protestants made peace with the idea that there's this plurality of churches and i think that it's fun you know, in a way, it's problematic. We we have to say that there's one church, and you know, I don't I don't think we need to say that it's just the Catholic Church. Um, somehow, there's one church and it's broken. You know, it's divided. But it, well, isn't, the idea isn't it isn't it in <clears throat> you can uh, I can tell you, you probably know your C.S. Lewis better than I ever will. Um, but in Screw Tape Letters, one of the things they talk about. Is get people going to multiple churches and uh, and bounce around and and never find a home and, and mm. different things like that and you go you know one of the one of the offshoots you know like 
Martin Luther, you bring it back to there. Uh, one of the things he probably could not have realized, none of them probably could have realized that. Maybe they, maybe they did. Who knows? Can't go back. I, I would love, you know, <clears throat> what, what, what lovely fun it would be if we could have a time machine and go see some of these conversations play out. But I assume, you know, like, there's no way he could have known that by speaking out against the Catholic Church, by pushing uh, away from it, that out of that would come so many different things. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. you yeah. think, it, like, I, I just drive around, I, I drive around my city now, and I go, okay, Catholic, I don't know what that is. I have no idea what that one is. Mm -hmm. Well, that one's, uh, you know, okay, Protestant, okay. And, oh, there's a Baptist, and, and on and on it goes. I mean, yep. when I look at the Catholic Church, one of the things that I, I was really curious to ask you about was, like, so they so they talk about, I, is it Russian East Orthodox? Russian Orthodox, yeah. Or just Russian Orthodox. They, they talk about different, like, <laughs> I don't even know. Even in yeah. Catholic, Catholic Church, there yeah. isn't just, like, Catholic. There's, like, different, and I call them sects because I honestly don't know what the heck to say yeah. about this, Jason, because I'm like, I just yeah. assume it's all the Catholic Church. But now you have people saying there's there's uh, there's old biblical Catholicism, or hmm. there's the newer and and I, I'm like, you got to explain this one to me. If you just take out Martin Luther and you you follow just the Catholic Church, why has there been, you know, one that is the the Russian Orthodox? Mm -hmm. Why do people stare at that as different from just regular yeah. Catholicism? Well, yeah, I should say I should mention the Orthodox. That that's the original schism. Um, and, that and is I think the, the original schism. That's the original schism. I think there's uh, there, there's a lot that can be learned about what how how Protestants and Catholics are related to each other by studying the, the way that Orthodox understand their relationship to Catholics. Um, Orthodox Christians, uh, you know, sometime you know, usually the date of the schism is da it's dated to like 1054 um, when you know the the two two churches sort of excommunicated each other. So just um, I, I got my time yeah. frame down. I want to make sure on this. <clears throat> About fifteen hundred, you got Martin Luther and the Protestant, right. and boom, okay. But five hundred years before that, roughly in the thousand mark, right? You have a break or a little bit of a split in the Catholic, uh, Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, you're right to say a break in the Catholic Church because Orthodox would say that they are part of the Catholic Church. They wouldn't say they're part of the Roman Catholic Church. But the, the, again, the word Catholic just means the single universal church, right? And even so, even people like Martin Luther and there are Protestants that will say that they are Catholic with a lower lowercase c, uh, but they're not Roman Catholic. Um, so, so Orthodox and uh, they're in a lot of ways they're like Roman Catholics. They have a liturgy. Um, the liturgy is quite different, quite uh, you know, extraordinary, ancient, beautiful thing. A lot of singing, uh, a lot of standing incense. They they have an iconostasis. They use a lot of images. Um, you know, it's a beautiful religious tradition, ancient, and it it, it um, encompasses a whole lot of of different kind of uh, traditional diversity. You know, and then there's there's a whole lot of Eastern traditions that you know they, they're Greek speaking or they're uh, they're even Aramaic speaking traditions. It's very very few now, unfortunately, thanks to ISIS. Um, they're they're Coptic. Uh, traditions from Egypt, there are Ethiopian traditions from Ethiopia, obviously. Um, and I sort of, I, I went to, to Israel um, a few years back and went to this, you know, the, the central church uh, of Israel, 
which is the, the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, the really ancient church. Um, and it, the beautiful thing about that church is that all these ancient traditions worship in the same church in, in all their different all these different chapels that are that are you know arrayed all around in, inside of the, the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. It's this huge, beautiful thing. Um, and you can just sort of walk through and just see the you know extraordinary diversity of liturgies that are being um, practiced there. You know, they're very, very different, different languages. Go I, I, got, I got to stop for a sec. Liturgy. What do you mean? Oh, a liturgy is a sort of order of, of, a, of worship. So, you know, the ancient, uh, so Catholics use a liturgy and a lot of Protestants do too, actually. Um, Lutherans, for instance, uh, they, they follow a, a liturgy. And liturgy is sort of an ordered worship uh, program, you might say, um, involving reading of scriptures. So uh, when I go to a Catholic church, one of the things I do enjoy about Catholic church is they have structure. Now, at mm -hmm. times, folks, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I'm going to say it. It feels like a cult. I'm like, this is a little bit too much. <laughs> but I do enjoy yeah. the fact it's like, this is what happens, then this is what happens, then this yeah. is what happens, then we have a speed, and then, then this is what happens. I'm like, very ordered. That's yeah. what you're talking about with a, a, a liturgy, exactly. yes? Okay. Yes, that's exactly it. Okay, so then bring me back to Israel. You're talking about, and I, I forget the name, but this giant building, which you would uh -huh. call it, is church it a church? Of the, church of the Holy Sepulchre, yeah. It's, a, it's, it's really a basilica. It's a, it's a huge, a huge church building that, that includes a whole bunch of chapels. So, so there's underneath, different altars underneath one building, now you mm -hmm. can walk through and see Catholics, and then the next one is like like Muslims, Syrian, or is it all, it, or is it all, all Christians. Christians? All Christians. All Christians. Okay. Uh, they, they might not be all Christians that James, Father James would recognize, but they're <laughs> they're all ancient Christians that have you know these are these are like little capsules of ancient Christianity. I think you know, one one thing that I think uh, it, it's alarming to some um, like modern evangelicals is just how how aesthetically different. Christian worship was uh, in the early centuries. And I think you can see how aesthetically different it is by walking through the Church of the Holy Sepulchre because so what, a lot of what, these what, what sticks rites. Out, yeah, what, sorry. What, what sticks out, like when you go back to that time, you're walking through it, you're like, holy man, I didn't realize they did that, or mm -hmm. what, what have you. What, what, st what stuck out to you? Well, one of, I mean, the, one, one thing is just the... If you if you were to look at a lot of this uh, the liturgies that are going on in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, like an untrained eye would might think that they're Muslim, you know, like it's some kind of Muslims worship, you know, because they're speaking sometimes Arabic, sometimes Greek, sometimes, you know, some some Middle Eastern foreign language, um, and and a lot of times it's like a chant that sounds a little bit like uh, you know sort of Muslim call to prayer or something, um, a lot of incense, um, a lot of strange you know uh, liturgical implements and things <clears throat> i mean the, the as i've you know, learned about the catholic liturgy um i've which is really just a western right so in 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 christianity the, the the liturgy comes really out of judaism um the jewish uh earliest christians were were, were practicing jews in, in the book of acts they're still going to the temple and and um so and it talks about them breaking the bread and things like that <clears throat> and and so there's indications like the very earliest christians were were doing these um, and th these liturgical um, kinds of worship or performing liturgies um, and, and modern Catholics, modern uh, Orthodox, modern, you know, all, all Eastern Catholics, um, we all are, you know, trying to preserve these ancient 
uh, forms of worship, and they're sort of reflected in the in the, the ways that we in the liturgies we use today. The a lot of the prayers are very ancient in our in our current liturgies, and basic structure of the liturgy is, is ancient too. There's a division of the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the table. Um, liturgy of the word is you know the part of the uh, of the liturgy where we read different parts of the Bible, different different readings of the Bible in a in a, in a sequence that that um, you know that goes through three years, and and you read whole you know I think. I think most of the Bible actually through these three years, but um, so so that this is just the ancient. Like when you when you practice that liturgy, you're doing things that the earliest Christians were doing. It's kind of like this this ancient dance that the whole church has been doing, um, and and that's <clears throat> I think the really tragic thing about about some Protestant communities. And like I said, not all of them uh, have completely abandoned the liturgy. A lot of a lot of Protestant communities do use liturgy and uh, like the Anglicans, the Episcopalians, the Lutherans, um, the many others, Methodists, they all use uh, some version of the ancient Christian liturgy. <clears throat> but, but yeah, that's, um, I, I think that if you were to either transport an apostle to a lot of the modern American churches, North American churches, they, they wouldn't know where they were. You know, they wouldn't recognize it as a Christian, as Christian worship. You know, and I think if you were to transport modern American, North American Christians to, you know, the the, the church of the of the Acts community, I think they wouldn't recognize that either. I think I, I think that you know, there's there's just a vast cultural difference there, and that's not necessarily problematic. One of the things that I think is 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 um, is great about Catholicism is that it it doesn't try to stamp out these sort of local regional culture. Um, you know, so there, there are different rites within the, the, the Roman Catholic, I mean, I shouldn't say Roman Catholic, there are different rites that are in communion with the Catholic Church. Historically, you know, you had the Orthodox and the Western Latin Christians, they were all part of the same church, they were all unified under the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, <clears throat> um, even though they, they, they did all practice a slightly different liturgy, you know, it was, it's fine, that's... And to, to this day, um, there are a bunch of different rites that still are practiced in the Catholic Church, um, the churches that are still in communion with Rome, different Eastern Catholic um, Maronite. Um, there's the, an ordinariate uh, rite <clears throat> that that uh, Anglicans um, who have become Catholic can can continue to practice. So there are different kinds of litur liturgies in, in Catholic tradition. Um, there's the Latin rite, which is, I mean, really there are, Historically, have been two forms of the Latin rite. Right? There's the Latin form, extraordinary form, and then there's the, the Novus Ordo, which is the English or the the um, <clears throat> it's it's the it's, it's practiced in whatever language um, a country speaks. Um, <clears throat> and these two uh, have been kind of considered the the Latin rite or the, the Western Roman Catholic rite, um, but but the Catholic Church acknowledges a whole bunch of different rites. <clears throat> Do you give any, um, well, A, well, I, I guess I should go back. The the fact we're trying to do like an ancient dance, as you said, um, you know, th that's one of the things that is mesmerizing, if I if I uh, could say about reading the Bible, you know, especially when <laughs> Jesus is walking around, he's talking, you're going like, can you believe this guy? Holy Mackinac, like he is saying some things and, and you know, and it just is like, you know, you, but you got to read it. I mean, if you don't read it and you just, yeah. and, and, and then, I mean, uh, even the form of praying in itself, 
is this ancient thing, right? It just, it right. just is. And so yeah. uh, people before us did it, and then, and then, and you can go all the way back. And certainly to go back, I mean, what a trip, you know? Me and Jason hop yeah. in, a, in a time machine and go see how they did it 2,000 years ago. Wouldn't that be something, you know? And I can see, you, you like, you just think about it. Every generation that comes by loses a little piece that the other generation had before because maybe they don't fully understand it. Yeah. And and then they and and you you know and then you take two thousand years of that and and, and some some uh, division and and on and on it goes to where it sits, um, you know and there'd be a lot lost in there and I think that's what a lot of people, including myself, it's like okay so what have we lost and let's just let's just try and you know explain that out or talk it out so that people can find some things and 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 dig into some uh, different. Uh, thought processes because right now there's a ton there, there's a huge chunk of the western world that's just left church they ain't got no time for it they look at religion they look at church they're just turned off by it and i'm going okay well to me let's figure some of this out if we can yeah. I, I mean that's that's not a two-hour conversation and all of a sudden you're there like this takes uh, a lot of time and effort and, and digging into some things and being interested in it but uh certainly you know you go over the course of that much time even in the catholic church and uh, you get to walk through a building where there's different liturgies being used. I'm <laughs> like, what a yeah. wild trip that must have been. Yeah. Because, you know, you think, it, I just sit here and I go, it's one. Like, there's just one. There's a reason why it's one, because you do this, and, and this is the way we do it. And then I would assume that along the line comes whoever, and they go, well, that's stupid. I want to do it this way. And I mean, they probably didn't say stupid, folks, but you get the point. And then they slowly alter it, and the slow alter becomes this giant thing late, years <laughs> later. That's the way my brain looks yeah. at it and works. And I just go, I want to get back to the core of this and see what's there. And I, I feel like, you know, with your background mm -hmm. and Catholics in general, like they got a long history here. So if I go back to the beginning, you know, what was there and what and, and you've and you've brushed on a few of those uh, topics here today. Yeah, I think, you know, one one thing that I love about being a Catholic is that you have approved access. You're allowed to love ancient things. You're allowed to to study history. And, and, and you know, and it's not that Protestants aren't. There are a lot of Protestants that are very historically savvy. Um, I think there's a certain kind of evangelicalism that tends to, uh, you know, avoid history. You know, and John Henry Newman, he's this um, like he's kind of like C.S. Lewis. He was a he was an English Oxford Don who. Um, you know, he served the Church of England, and but, you know, John Henry Newman ultimately converted actually to, to Catholicism, but he thought that history was, you know, he, he just think that you couldn't really be, <clears throat> you couldn't really be a, a, a Christian in the full sense of the word without being sort of connected to the past. Um, and, and, you know, part of one of the sort of hallmarks of, of modernity is is just sort of rejection of the past wholesale now i, I don't think that there's a kind of traditionalism that's just about you know it, it's something like larping you know it's something like just performing uh past uh and, and reliving past things in a way that's really impossible you know you really can't bring the past back in its full uh meaning and full reality because the world is different you know and Anytime you're trying to restore some past order, you're really just recreating some version of the present. 
it's just a stylized version of the president. So I, I think there's a kind of traditionalism that is uh, that is unhealthy. You know, it's a kind of nostalgic, um, you know, a nostalgia for the past that 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 just refuses to live in the present. But there's also a kind of uh, progressivism that just wants that understands the whole point of the present and the whole the, the mandate of 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 modern people is is just sort of eliminating and annihilating the past and and forgetting it entirely well is it, but isn't that our, isn't that the the war that's been going on probably since the dawn of time the traditional <clears throat> versus progressive uh, you know if you use those two words the progressive is looking at the world today and going we need to adjust and everything else and the traditionalist wants to be back where you know honestly where 10 years ago was let alone 2000 and it's yeah. this constant pull and push or push and pull that is happening mm -hmm. and if a little bit more balance would yeah. uh would probably do the world a whole lot of good because you got to be like you you know to forget everything that that has gone on in the past what a wild thought that is you know and i go like i want no part of that there's so many <laughs> gems in history i mean I'm, I'm talking to a guy who studied it you know yeah uh to forget everything we've gone through is really a naive thing to do yeah um, there's so many wonderful lessons in the past and when you're talking about christianity in general i mean the guy in 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 uh the man in the new testament i mean all of them that are walking around the stories jesus in general like that's that's two thousand years ago like mm -hmm. and there's a lot of knowledge stuck in those pages where you're like holy dinah did I not realize mm -hmm. that I should have been reading this with eyes wide open, you know, 10 years ago, let alone maybe even sooner than that. But heck, I'm happy that I'm doing it now, you know, and to act like that has no relevance to today's world is like, honestly, insane, uh, because it does. It, it has it has transcended time. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's impoverishing, too. That was one of the things that was really striking about when I when I encountered what C.S. Lewis called mere Christianity. You see, I grew up in in a tradition, and and it it would resent that word. You know, it doesn't it didn't see itself as a tradition. In fact, it's so so fought so hard to not be a tradition, but it is a tradition. It's a tradition of sectarianism that emerged from the 16th century. Tradition that says it, it comes out of a of a movement. It comes out of a of a church or a tradition of some kind, and it cuts itself off from that and says those you know that's bad. We're the right version. And it rejects so much of the data, so much of the culture, so much of the of the literary, artistic, uh, intellectual achievements that it came out of. And each time, it just sort of culturally impoverishes itself. And so, the world I grew up in was was a world, uh, an emaciated, culturally impoverished sort of wasteland of a world that didn't that that didn't produce good works of literature, didn't write anything interesting, didn't didn't produce any good music. Um, it was all just sort of trite and narrow and poor, you know, just a cultural poverty that um, I, I didn't really realize until I encountered the richness of, of something that had the full body of the ancient. And in Mere Christianity, it is, it's a book that aspires to be bare bones. But the, the theology that I encountered in that book compared to the, to the world I grew up in, was just astounding. It was astounding, and really, so it was like the culture, and and the wealth of you know, C.S. Lewis is just such a, 
brilliant writer and thinker. And I could see that the way his, his engagement with the past had shaped his imagination. And it's just marvelous. C.S. Lewis loved the medieval world. He, he studied it. Um, he, was, he was an aficionado of the med medieval world. Um, and he, he wrote a book called The Discarded Image. A beautiful book, highly recommended. It's, it's just a study of medieval, medieval cosmology. Um, but you see his medieval imagination in all of his works, even especially his, his uh, space trilogy. Um, and, uh, but it's just he, he, that, that, wouldn't, that richness of imagination just wouldn't be possible if he had been a sectarian who rejected the past wholesale like that. And I think, I think C.S. Lewis was a, was a connoisseur. I think that's the key to tradition, to doing it right. You know, we don't try to repristinate don't try to just like bring the past back in every aspect, preserve every jot and tittle of it and make sure that we, we don't lose anything at all. You know, I, that that becomes the kind of LARPing. Um, I think the point is to be in, engaged with it, deeply engaged with it, to know what what needs to be carried on and what needs to be forgotten and abandoned. Because there are some things that we just but that we don't need, you know, to resurrect. We don't need to resurrect um, you know, slavery, things like that. You know, there are things, <clears throat> of the, you know, the ancients understood better than we do. And every, like C.S. Lewis said, every historical era has its own, you know, its, its own insights and its own blind spots. And I think that's why, you know, engaging the past is so important. It just sort of gives us perspective. It's like leaving your country so that you can, you can get a perspective on it. Um, you can't really do that if, if all you've ever known is, is your own culture. Um, G.K. Chesterton called it the democracy of the dead. Um, when you let, when you study the past in order to, to allow people of the past to have some influence on the present. So, yeah, I think there's a kind of in, intelligent connoisseurship of the past that makes for uh, a robust and, and, and um, you know, a flourishing present. And, and, you know, if I may say one more thing, this, the, an example of this was the Renaissance. The Renaissance didn't, there were, they were progressives. The, the Renaissance movement was a progressive movement to be sure, but it was a progressive movement that resourced the past. It turned back to the classical traditions to look for things that we had overlooked and to restore them, you know, and in some ways the world was changing during the Renaissance era. You know, there was city-states emerging where the feudal world was a much more uh, decentralized kind of political arrangement. Um, and so the humanists need a, needed a new way to understand life inside in cities. And they turned to the classical world because the classical world was, was a place where uh, city-states were, where, where the were sort of, it, you know, it was a very urban society. <clears throat> that was just one reason why they turned back to the past, but they were, key point is that they were progressives. You know, there were people who were not trying to preserve the status quo, but quite consciously trying to change it in certain ways. But they weren't just trying to abolish the past. I think that is a sort of crude, um, mindless progressivism that just thinks that the past equals bad. Get away from it. And the whole, you know, moral agenda of the progressive, and, and many times I think this is the way that progressives think today, if, if they don't articulate it, is just a sheer abolition of everything that belongs to the past. The future has to look like something un utterly and entirely different. Now, I, I think that's insane, partly because it's impossible. You're, you're, you know, there's nothing that's so new about the present or the future that can that can make it look utterly, utterly unlike the past. 
But the only way we know what to do with the future is by looking at the past and seeing the sort of getting inspirations from it. Um, and that's what, you know, the, the Renaissance humanism, I think that's what, that's a great example of that. They, they moved forward, they were progressives, but they, they did it by looking at the past. Yeah. Uh, incorporating the past is, well, I, I don't know. I, I had the epiphany once upon a time on this thing where I'm like, you know, if I went back a hundred years, the people back then were pretty much no different than me, except they, heck, they were probably smarter than me. Um, but the difference was technology. I mean, yeah. let's just, like, just look at where we're living now. And in the, in the last hundred years, the advancement in, in a whole different, like just across the board in technology, it's not even yeah. remotely same, you know, somebody sure. from, uh, 1702 walked in and, 2023 they'd be like what is going on you know and uh they'd speak in a different language they'd have different terms for things and all you got to do is re read a few different books to understand the language has changed uh culturally we've we've progressed you know to st to use that word and and certainly technologically we've advanced like to insane levels you know it's it's mm -hmm. pretty wild to think how far we've come but the the average person is is roughly you know the same cares about the same yeah. things thinks about the same things <laughs> once you know for the most part uh roughly the same things um we just go about it in different ways now because you know uh you know i only less than 100 years ago where i'm from you know they had to worry about shelter you know i i've interviewed mm -hmm. a lot of folks who who grew up in the late 20s early 30s 40s and they talked about the cold and how cold it was here Right, because the the ability to build a house is different back then to it is now. Mm -hmm. So you can tell your your pain points were different. Yeah. Um, I would say they weren't too worried about uh, gender ideology in school. I just I'm gonna assume that that did not yeah. cross their brains. <clears throat> now I'm not saying there wasn't other problems in school. I'm sure there was, but overall that wasn't crossing their brain because they were worried about how they were gonna keep food cold in the summertime. Oh wait, they went to the the river by us and cut ice blocks and built things and manual labor was you know everybody was uh, beat the crap out of us uh, these days you know mm -hmm. like we must have been hardy hardy people when when we uh i'm getting this off topic here when we when we look at uh the catholic church when we look at i've had different people on here and I, i'm i want to ask you about baptism right mm -hmm. i don't know how much you've looked into it i don't know if this is but one of the things that i had a guy on here talking about was uh, and I can't remember if it's Catholics. I can't remember. I, I want to say he said all the churches baptize in the name of the Son, the, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Don't know if I'm I'm right or bang on in that, folks. And he said that's they right. have it wrong. You need to baptize in the name of Jesus, because that's what they do in the New Testament. Is um, after I don't know. I'm not, not this. I guess this is where I'm getting getting your thoughts on this, because one of the things was uh, they were baptizing in the wrong, and it's different. Yeah, I'm. I'm not super familiar with that tradition. I suspect that. Ooh, I, I think I've, I've heard of this I've, before. I've I've got Jason's brain working. This <laughs> yeah, you morning, got me folks. stumped. You got me stumped. No, I I I'm. It it, it the, one one of the nice things, one of the points where where I think there's a possibility for a lot of ecumenism is that um, most Christians accept the baptism of most Christians. Catholics think that the baptism of Protestants is is valid and sacramental. Um, again, it is because they, they invoke the name of the Trinity, the, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, 
And I, and I, I feel like it's maybe the seventh day Adventists that do the baptism in the name of Jesus. Um, there are a couple of, you know, th this is, this is one, one sort of, I don't, I don't think Catholic, the, the obsession with doctrinal details is really originally Catholic. I think that's something that, um, and Catholics do be, be, become obsessed with doctrinal details too. Um, and I don't think that they're, I don't think that the, 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 the differences are insignificant. I think that the invocation of the Trinity is essential. You know, I don't think, I don't think it's a valid baptism if it's, if you don't invoke the Trinity. Um, but there's a kind of, there's a kind of Christian that, <laughs> that seems to look for some, something in the Bible that they can latch onto and say, aha, I'm, I will build a church off of this. You know, they, they create an entire church. It's based on, I think the Seventh-day Adventists kind of do that with the, they think that everyone's wrong to be worshiping on Sunday. And and, and so they worship on Saturday, which is is, is the Sabbath day. Um, and so I, I'm not, I may be confused what, here. but No, it, no, no. But when <laughs> you look back at, uh, look when you look back, at the journey of the Catholic Church, this is this is an interesting thought because you you're right. People are p going. Wait, it says in here to baptize baptize in the name of Jesus, and it says it here again here, and it says it over here, and it says it over here. Is it possible in the long history of the Catholic Church that little details get just changed over time, so where you mm -hmm. baptize in the name of the Trinity, but in the beginning, or in the writings of the New Testament? I don't know at the beginning, you know, I don't want to confuse things here, um, that that was the way it was supposed to be. And over time, it just gets changed ever so slightly. Um, on this particular and I don't mean, issue... And, 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 and once yeah. again, we don't have to stick strictly to bapti baptism. Yeah. But you're right. There are people that are looking at the text these days, and probably all across the, the history of when the Bible was created till now, that are like, but hey, it says right here. I mean, that's what's interesting, honestly, about discussing the Bible is like mm -hmm. you're gonna see things I never saw. And another person's gonna and and by yeah. introducing them all into the, the conversation, it's like, well, what does that mean? Heck, that is the Council of Nicaea, is it not? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, they're arguing over scripture and the interpretation of scripture. And one of the interesting things about Nicaea is that you know, is that it, it, the Orthodox party, the, the party that went out in the end um, for the doctrine of, of, of the Trinity, uh, and Athanasius uh, admits that both uh, both doctrines could be read into into this, the passages of Scripture. So you could you could think that uh, the New Testament says that Jesus is the, the Son is less than the Father. That's in in some sense a legitimate interpretation of Scripture. But, you know, and that's just because the scripture is not like a, a legal document. It doesn't, it's not designed to exclude uh, all wrong interpretations. And, and, you know, this is just something that the, the, the ancient world understood this better than we do. Generally, texts don't, don't, they only have so much power over us. You know, I think it was Plato who said that um, no, no, only a fool commits a serious thought to writing because writing is uh, gets away from you. You know, people can interpret it however they want, and a writing can't defend itself. You know, only uh, the living. Uh, That's why I hate voice. text. That's yeah. why, honestly, <laughs> you, you think of today's yeah. world, why things on a text chain, right? When you get in a group of people, oh, yeah. you say something, and you're like, "That's not what I meant." 
yeah, like, yeah oh my exactly. god let's just have a conversation right like and you think yep. what's one of the biggest forms of communication right now twitter it's like yeah. oh boy we shorthand. can shorthand not you know and 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 when you go from oral tradition to putting things into a book yeah. to interpreting that i actually get what you mean that makes yeah. a lot of sense because as soon yeah. as you write things down how do you get all your thoughts to make it make sense yeah uh, yeah I, th I don't know there, there's some modern hermeneuticist who says it's like a hermeneuticist somebody who's who studies the business of interpretation studies interpretation and he says that after an author is finished writing a book he's just one more reader you know and and so there, there's a you know the texts have a weird way of getting away from uh their author and, and the meaning of the author um, how do you know what the Bible means? Well, the early Protestants would say that it was it was self-evident. You know, it was just sort of you didn't need anybody to tell you how to read this book. You didn't need to tell need anybody to tell you what it means. You just look at the book and it tells you what it means. And a lot of a lot of some Protestants, not all Protestants, again, a lot of, not all Protestants accept this doctrine of sola scriptura, um, that the you know the only authority should be the the Scripture itself, and that you know not all the thought of Protestants accept that. And and the reason is that. Uh, and we, we find this out in the, in the early decades of, of the Protestant Reformation, the Protestants can't agree about what it means. You know, one of the very first thing that split the Protestants apart, you know, the reason why we now have Lutherans, Calvinists, and, and other different groups is because they couldn't agree what Jesus meant when he said, this is my body at the Lord's, at the supper, the last supper. Um, Martin Luther, and this is something that a lot of Protestants don't know, Martin Luther believed that Jesus meant that literally. He, he meant that when you sacrifice or when you, sorry, I shouldn't say the word sacrifice. <laughs> uh, when you, when you, um, when you celebrate the Eucharist, the, what, what the Catholics call the mass, that Martin Luther thought Jesus Christ is really present in the Eucharist. He's really present in the bread and the wine. Martin Luther thought that he took Jesus at his word so that that passage was literal. Um, John Calvin didn't. Um, Zwingli didn't. They both thought that Jesus was speaking metaphorically. He was speaking symbolically. Uh, it wasn't literal. Martin Luther, you know, so you, Lutherans, I believe Lutherans still um, take a literal view of like the Catholics. They, they, they believe in the real presence of Jesus in the, in the wine and, and, uh, and bread of the, of the Holy Eucharist. Um, and so that's an, just an example of how, uh, you know, how fallacious the idea is that the, the, it's just obvious what scripture means and that there's no difficulty about interpreting it. Um, and the reason why you sort of need some, I mean, the, the reason why the magisterium of the Catholic church exists is, is largely just to, to be kind of authoritative teacher to explain what Holy scripture means. Um, and it has this continuous relationship with these books, uh, with the, the sacred scriptures that, it canonized, you know, it's, 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 it's like contemporary, but it, it comes with that. The scriptures come with and out of the Catholic tradition. And so it sort of makes sense that the Catholic tradition is the thing that interprets it. Um, now, Martin Luther was part of the Catholic tradition. He was an Augustinian hermit. Um, and, and I think a lot of Protestants, if they were to go visit, you know, jump in the time machine and go visit Martin Luther, they would think they're looking at a, at a Roman Catholic most of the time. You know, in a lot of ways, his 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 his, uh, his style of worship, his theology, his 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 sensibilities—they're very Catholic. He was, in many ways, very much Catholic. 
and certainly as, as regards his, his view of the Eucharist, you know, there's there's a lot of there's not much difference um, between Roman Catholics kind of uh, articulate uh, Christ's presence in the sacrament differently, but ultimately there, we both say that you know Jesus is really present um, in in the, the wine and bread. You know, when um, I got to get this thought out, otherwise I'm gonna it's gonna torture me for the rest of the day. But when you talk about a, a, a uh, an author after he's done a book is just another reader. I, actually, I would say after this podcast is done, I just become another listener. Like if I go back <laughs> and listen to it, there's a whole bunch of things that I've probably missed. There's a whole bunch of things that people want me to ask and, and on and on and on and on and on it goes, right? And you. then you th- and then you think you, you go a year and then you come back and listen and you go, because hey, now you'll know a whole bunch of different things. I'll be like, man, I right. that. You know, and that's one of the lovely things about keeping a conversation going. Right. Of not I don't mean just today, but I mean, you know, over the course of a year or two or uh, et cetera, et cetera, because then you can build on things and, and start to d- discuss a whole different uh, um, list of questions and ideas. Um, I have two thoughts. One is when I stare at the Catholic Church. I see a power structure that, you know, you you brought it up early on, that the state and the church, they wanted to separate, right? Because, and when there is something that is powerful as the Catholic Church, unbeknownst to it, or maybe even they realize it, it would would attract bad human beings, Mm -hmm. dark human beings, I don't know, evil human, I don't know. People that would like to, in the history of... of, uh, the Catholic Church. Have you ever looked into that? Like over, because yeah. it like as it gets bigger and more powerful, it'd be easier to sneak through the cracks and then and sure, slowly sure. rise. I just look at politics. I just I simply look at politics. I don't need to look at anything yeah. else. And you see like some bad human beings got in there. Not all of them. For right? sure. Yeah. Once again, anytime there's a power structure where one person or a group of people get to control a large portion of people, for some reason that really attracts some people that yeah. aren't so great. Have, have mm-hmm. you looked into any of that? Yeah, yeah. You know, you don't have to look very far. <laughs> Corruption is sort of everywhere in, in, uh, in, in the, you know, the history of, of the church politics. Um, it's, not, it's not pretty. Um, I, think, I think people often un, don't pay enough attention to all the wonderful things that the church has done for the world. You know, all the universities, the, the, uh, the hospitals, uh, you know, all the, the, a lot of the civil institutions that exist today are sort of things that Catholic and Catholic monastic communities created, but the church has been, um, is constantly fighting with internal corruption. There's no doubt, no doubt. The church has done uh, at times horrible, wicked things. And if we had to rely on the holiness of clerics, um, we'd be in bad shape. There's just no doubt about that. Um, And Martin Luther wasn't wrong. You know, he was not wrong to see a church desperately need in need of reform. Um, there were practices of, uh, ma- you know, manipulative practices of indulgences. There were, you know, there were in the 14th century, you know, the, the Pope and bishops were sort of handing out um, appointments to different seats in, in the church, different positions of, uh, of authority in the church um, to the highest bidder, you know, so secular politicians could just sort of buy a bishopric, uh, a seat to, you know, in a certain region and start collecting money, you know, it's sort of like a second form of taxation. You know, there were, there, there definitely, there's no doubt. And I, and I never want to deny that 
and there's no chance of reforming an, an institution that can't admit its own, um, you know, so its own problems, its own corruption. What the Catholics think is that um, just just in the way that Jesus's human flesh was not ultimately so imperfect that God couldn't work through it, that despite all of its its faults, the Catholic Church is still the instrument for God's salvific work in the world. Um, so yeah, I, I'm 100. percent And and you know the truth, yeah, nobody is more frustrated about corruption in the church than Catholics. Um, you, I mean, a lot of times we're we're the ones who suffer from it, suffer the most, you know. And and our children are, you know, the, the sex abuse crises. Um, that they, they they've they've you know just ravaged people's lives and um and the, and the fact that you know we, we catholics are just constantly pulling our hairs out um when the church continues and doesn't you know we don't see progress in reforming these things and i think there's just the, the church has to constantly be on this kind of reform war path or else it just falls into all kinds of uh corruption um you know so there are different ways to, to deal with corruption it's everywhere you know, you can either go the sectarian thing and just start a new church every time you find corruption, or you can fight the corruption from within and and maintain unity. Um, and Martin Luther did a lot of great things for the church, um, even though he left it. You know, he he started a Catholic counter reformation movement that actually did have a lot of positive effects on the the state of the church after um, after the Protestant Reformation, but. Um, yeah, the church still today still very desperately in need of reform. Do you know uh, statistics wise, like how how big the church is, like amount of I don't know bishops and cardinals and uh, do do you can you just like rattle that off or you're just like well it's a right around here. No, I'm afraid not. I don't. I don't. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, probably as much. I try. I, it's like watching sausage making. You know, you don't. <laughs> it's it's not a pleasant thing to to study too carefully the politics of the church and so i don't i i can i can't tell you uh numbers i can tell you some things about the scale of the global church uh but i can't i can't i don't afraid i can't say much about the scale of its uh institutional hierarchy i was just uh yeah one 1.3 billion that'd be members but i, I, was, yeah. I was just i was just curious like how many people are, are part of the uh, let's see if Google will give me a number. How many people? There you go. More than one million employees in an operating budget of nearly $100 billion to run parishes, dioceses, primary and secondary schools, nursing homes, retreat centers, hospitals, and other charitable institutions. So one million people? R roughly wow. uh, now yeah, i don't know cool. once again folks don't take my word on that that is that is google spitting me out an answer so yeah. uh yeah. but uh just um you know uh i was just you know like when you talk about the politics and it, it once again I, I i mean this in the best possible way folks when i look at the catholic church it just is a big giant institution and and it's got a very a very what is the word I'm looking for important like message to help spread to the world 
But when yeah. you have a giant institution, if we've learned anything on this pod, uh, pod, a podcast over the last three years, it's giant in- institutions have a problem with, you know, when you talk about uh, some of the corruption and inner politics and, and you realize like one million people, that's a lot. But then you realize yeah. there's, you know, how many billions of people on the on the planet? You got one billion people are Catholics. You go like mm-hmm. actually, you know, like that's a it's a very powerful organization all over again. You know, there's mm-hmm. a reason why uh, Catholics kind of stand alone, if you would, and people attack from all different sides. Uh, it's it's interesting. I just curious, you know, um, uh, with you know the size and scope of of what we're talking about. Yeah, and and there's something to be said for the idea that uh, the the physical form of the church sometimes has gotten in the way of its of its mission. And there were, this was definitely the case in like the end of the or the beginning of the of the 19th century when um, the church actually had like a small kingdom of its own. Um, you know, the, the papal states of of, of uh, Italy. You know, this was the this was uh, a, t- a time when part of Italy was owned by was 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 like a sovereign state controlled by um, by the church by the pope and to this day you know the, the small patch of land inside of the middle of the Vatican it's the middle of Rome or it's not really the middle the Vatican is is a sovereign state but that sovereign state was much larger and and um, had had a lot of citizens right now the, the Vatican doesn't really have. Uh, a lot it doesn't really have like a citizenship uh that includes laity and stuff like that but in those days it did and levied taxes and things like that um and in the in in sometime near the end of the of the 19th century um those lands were were sort of forcefully taken away from from the church the church didn't have like a very powerful army and italians um sort of reclaimed those lands or not reclaimed just claimed them and uh, it was viewed for you know by Pius the Ninth at the time as this massive tragedy. Um, but in retrospect, you know, that it was sort of like the, the world had changed, and that sort of model of the church just wasn't working anymore. And uh, the transformation of the institution of the church in that case uh, turned out to be providential, and the church has actually been able to do things and operate in a way that it wasn't able to. I mean, there, you know, one example is that Catholics historically have always been under suspicion in every country where they live, uh, is in, in European, in like Northern European and, and even, even Catholic countries, suspicion that they are actually agents of the Pope and that the Pope could call on them and, and they could be like used against the country where they, where they live. You know, that was always a concern, especially when the, the church was a country of its own. Right, you can see how that could create a conflict of interest. Which which country are you citizens of, Catholics? Um, so when the when the Pope lost those states, I think those kinds of concerns started to recede into the background, and Catholics were now free to sort of be citizens of their own countries without so much suspicion. So tran- the transformation of the institution. I mean, the, the Church's institutional form. There are some aspects of it that can't change. But there are other aspects of it that I think are subject to change and often do change and have to change um, to sort of suit suit the, the the order of the world around it and to be able to play its role, at, you know, in, in proclaiming the gospel. You ever wonder what's in the Vatican? Have you have you thought about <laughs> that? Like, man, wouldn't that be a trip to get in there and, and see what they actually oh, yeah. have? 
Oh, I would love it. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I, it was in sometime in the 19th century that the Vatican started opening up to have uh, scientists and scholars to come in and, and, and use um, Vatican resources, Vatican, uh, you know, massive Vatican library. Um, someday I will, someday I'll go and, and check out the books. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing. I, I, I've been in the Vatican. The before, day you so. get in there, Jason, is the day I want, <laughs> I'm like, we, 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 we got to talk about that. Cause I, I feel like that's uh, probably one of the best kept secrets under the sun is, is what's in the Vatican. Well, there's some secrets there, but but I, any scholar can go in and and uh, request to to view the man, you know certain manuscripts. Um, and the Vatican is actually, you know, one of the things that I've I've recently discovered and, and very happy to have discovered it. You can actually browse the Vatican's digitized a lot of the ancient manuscripts it holds, and you can actually just go browse, you know, ancient medieval manuscripts online. And uh, I've actually been doing that. I've been reading Thomas Aquinas and some of these original. Uh, manuscripts that he wrote with his sloppy hand handwriting. <laughs> so yeah. Um, before before I let you out of here, I had one other one other thought, and uh, it was uh, I I don't know enough about this, so you know you you take it or leave it or or uh, what have you. One of the other things I've always heard is is Catholics remove books from the Bible. And so I, I think of Book of uh, Enoch, and there's probably a bunch of other ones. Is there any truth to that? Is that uh, I don't know? Is it you know was that rated at rated the start of when the Bible was made, or is this down the road where they started removing things like that? My my understanding is that it's it's completely false that the Catholics precisely don't remove books from the Bible, and that's really what um, what some Protestants have had grievances about that they didn't cut out of the Septuagint. Um, canon, uh, what the, the the books that the Jews, uh, the Hebrews considered to be deuterocanonical. Um, I'm not 100 percent sure about the Book of Enoch. I know I know the Book of so, Enoch. I've read it, but I don't so, know if it's. So one, once again, yeah, sorry, uh, this is once again this is Google telling me, but it says by the fifth century the Book of Enoch was mostly excluded from Christian biblical canons, and it is now mm -hmm. regarded as scripture only by the Ethiopian Orthodox. Oh boy, that's a name. Tahiti oh, Church and Eritrean Orthodox Tahiti Church. I oh, wow. butchered those names, so I apologize. But um, the, the fifth century, so that's that, that's you know, uh, you know, three hundred years roughly, um, you know, later. Uh, and once again, uh, you know, uh, the thing I can do for the thing we could do too is. Uh, the conversation never has to stop, right? Me and Jason folks can uh, shoot off some things. One of the things I, I enjoy about your background is how much uh, you've dug into things and, and stared and studied and everything else. So, uh, you know, if you go, man, like leave that with me and I dig into it some more, um, that's, that's cool too because uh, one of the things, and I don't know, honestly, for me, is better than uh, I think and kind of whatever. It's like, well, actually, I don't know. I, like I'd love to dig into that because one of the yeah. things on here is we we hope to explore some different conversations, some different questions, and get to the bottom of some things. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Check out the Ethiopian uh, Orthodox. That's a, a really neat tradition, by the way. Um, yeah. So my sense is that what what this, because the, the 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 canon isn't really top down defined um, until the Council of Trent. Um, there's sort of a, a, a organic development of a canon. Um, and there are certain points where the, the magisterium 
Um, I think one of the, I think it was Pope Urban II, maybe, who, no, it wasn't, it was, there was a Pope who commissioned Jerome to, to, to do his translation of the Vulgate. Um, and that, that translation uh, was the thing that, um, that really settled the canon uh, de facto. You know, it really wasn't a de jure uh, definition of the canon. It was, it was just sort of de, de facto. Um, and I think probably the same holds for the Book of Enoch. My guess is that, um, you know, it might have, have as much to do with the, the difficulties of, of transmitting texts in the ancient world, where in, in order to, to make a book, somebody had to sit down with, uh, you, know, you know, you sort of had to come up with the paper and the or, or the, the parchment, um, which involves, you know, killing animals or harvesting papyrus or something. And it was a very expensive process. And so to create a book, you really had to be uh, sort of uh, judicious about what you were going to put in it because that thing was expensive. And it's expensive to, to you know, to have somebody devote thousands of hours to writing, to copying, you know, a new manuscript. So it might have as much to do with the fact that there's, you know, the Book of Enoch wasn't really being used for any liturgical purposes. Um, and mostly its interest was a scholarly thing. Um, but, you know, again, it's, it's, it's a, when, when they say it's, it was removed from the canon, um, I, don't, I don't know that that was a, a magisterial decision. It wasn't like a decision that the, the church hierarchy made as far as, as far as I'm just, again, I'm just sort of shooting from the hip here guessing. Um, my guess is that it was, it was sort of a scholarly thing that scholars just stopped copying it over, scribes. Um, but uh, but I, yeah, I really, you know, just my sense is just that these sort of decisions tended not to be sort of made by councils or, or popes at, at this point until, and not until, you know, a good deal later. It was, you know, the, 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 what, what ended up being used as the Christian canon really was just a much more organic um, story. You know, as, as I hear some things pick up in the background, I, I, I do want to end. I, I just, you said Council of Trent again, and I'm trying to rack my mm -hmm. brain. Did we address what Council of Trent was at the start? I, I'm actually like, no. I can't remember if we talked about it, but Council of Trent has come all the way back up. It was one of the things I wrote down right at the start. What was the Council of Trent, and when was it? Uh, the Council of Trent occurred just shortly after uh, the Protestant Reformation. So I think it was 1545, maybe. Okay. It was, it was uh, the council that was called sort of in reaction, in response to uh, the rise of, of sort of, of Protestant. Martin, of Martin Luther. Yeah, yeah Martin Luther and others. Um, yeah, the diff different Protestant countries starting to, you know, to you know, to, to sort of disagree with the church and make public disagreements and publish, you know, again the Gutenberg press is, is already um, is already in play, and you know there's all kinds of literature flying around and Catholic responses, and so the, the Council of Trent was in large part a reaction to the to the rise of Protestantism, and an attempt to sort of give definitive answers to questions that had arisen because of Protestant. Uh, you know challenges so in some ways trent is is a bit of a reaction to protestantism um and but in trent in trent all they're doing is addressing are they removing anybody are they or or what's why 
is Council of Trent even then a, a big deal if if all it is is the Catholic Church getting together going, okay, we got to address Martin Luther here. Like, what the heck is going on? We're, we've got all these attacks coming in. Is that all of it that happens in the Council of Trent, or is there more to it? I mean, there's a, there's 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 a bit more to it. I'm I'm sure, but I, I think that was the occasion um, that that brought it up. And then, of course, the Council of Trent, its significance really has to do with how it defined uh, Catholic culture and um, sort of the agenda of, of theologians in the church for until really until the Second Vatican Council. The Second Vatican Council is uh, a point where, you know, so if, if Trent had the tendency of, of, of being a kind of uh, reaction uh, to Protestantism, you know, Second Vatican Council kind of takes a different posture in a way. Um, it's not it's not discontinuous with the Council of Trent, but it but it's the first time I think there's enough distance from all these these rivalries in Europe where Catholics can say, all right, let's let's try to find a way to 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 say something positive to the modern world, say something positive to the Protestants, embrace them as our brothers. And, and you know, this is the, sort of the first time where uh, Catholics are are sort of encouraged to uh, acknowledge, um, you know, acknowledge the, the goodness of Protestant traditions um, and encouraged to sort of find ways to make peace with, with their Christian brothers who are outside of the Catholic Church. Um, so, yeah, in a way, you can say that the, the tr Trent, you know, it canonized uh, a virgin, it ca canonized the Vulgate. So it canonized the Bible that had already been um, in use for some time. Um, but it, it canonized it just as a way of saying, no, Martin Luther's Bible is not the true Bible. This is the true Bible. And Martin Luther's Bible was the one that was original. You know, that, that's the one that was, there was something novel there. Martin Luther grew up with the, with the Vulgate. You know, the only Bible he ever had was the Catholic Bible. That's, that's, where, that's where, you know, his Bible came from. He, there would be no Bible to talk about if the Catholic Church didn't exist, you know. Um, but so Martin Luther, when he translated it, that's when he made these editorial decisions and wanted to cut things out and did cut things out. Um, and so the Catholic Church saw people translating Bibles into different vernacular languages and making new canons up. And so the Catholic Church wanted to, to you know, to clarify for, for the Catholic flock what, what was in the Bible and what wasn't, because up until that point, it really hadn't been magisterially defined. Um, and so, you know, to find the Vulgate, the Sixto Clementine Vulgate, um, which, you know, it, it, it was the form of the Bible that Jerome had translated sometime, I think, in the fourth century that uh, had developed, um, you know, n not in, in massive, significant ways, but in, in small translational ways, um, you know, different discovery of different texts and improving it in certain ways. Um, you know, especially in the Old Testament case, where the, the discovery of, of Maser, you know, of Jewish texts, of, of, of Hebrew, older Hebrew texts, kind of helped to improve the translation. That was, uh, again, derived from a Greek translation called the Septuagint. But anyway, I don't want to get into the weeds there. Uh, <laughs> We've been in the weeds for some time. I appreciate you coming on and doing this, Jason. Yeah. I'm, I'm. Uh, you know, I, I, I joked with him, how much time we got? He's like, as long as you want. I'm like, all right, well, <laughs> what comes with time is the weeds. Either way, I appreciate you hopping on and doing this. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, I'll be curious what the thought process from the listeners is after this, because 
they're they're um, they're the, as much the ones asking for this as anyone. They they want to have some balanced discussion on both sides of this thing, and uh, and see where we come out. So I appreciate you you hopping on and doing this with me. My pleasure, Sean. It's been a great conversation. I enjoyed it.